begin with verse 8. So I actually think that's the punchline of the text. So we're going to read Romans chapter 13, beginning with verse 8. Listen to the word of God. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves fulfills or has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For our salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone. The day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, in the midst of the many words that come to us both from within and from out, may you, the living word, open our eyes to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you know that old spiritual? It actually comes from the time of the Civil War. I'm going to lay down my sword and shield. You know that? I'm going to lay down. My sword and shield. Are you going to sing with me or are you going to make me do this myself? Okay. Down by the riverside, down by the riverside, down by the riverside, going to lay down my sword and shield. Down by the riverside, ain't going to study war no more. Ain't going to study war no more. Okay. That's a great idea, right? It's an amazing idea. Where in the world did that come from, that idea? The Bible. <laughs> Bob just read it. It's actually in Isaiah chapter 2. It's also repeated in different forms in different texts throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Every Advent 1 and 2, we speak of hope and peace. There's an idea that almost seems outlandish. And I have to admit, every Advent and multiple times during the year or the week and some days, we have to at least consider that the idea that God may be messing with us. All this hopeful language. And preachers need to at least wait until the end of the message before they totally spiritualize or internalize this message. Maybe you can turn beating into plowshares into mindfulness or a hallmark movie version of the gospel. But for Christ's sake, for each other's sake, for the world's sake, don't do that. Because I think we need to look at the idea that hope is a concrete reality, not just a sentimentalized notion. Occasionally, hope breaks out. One story that I've just always been fascinated, there's a book about it, I have the book on my shelf, and particularly over the last number of years when we've been looking at the centennial of World War One. Um, if there ever was a total waste of human life uh, for 
less than noble purposes, World War I is a remarkable and heinous example of that. Um, it shattered the world, and we're still living out the implications of World War I. But the first December of the world, the war, in, the, in December, Christmas Eve, 1914, roughly 100,000 British and German troops had an unofficial cessation of hostilities on the Western Front. It just broke out. Matter of fact, here is an eyewitness account of what happened. The Germans began placing candles on their trenches and on Christmas trees, then continued the celebration by singing Christmas carols. The British responded by singing carols of their own. The two sides continued by shouting Christmas greetings to each other. Soon thereafter, there was excursions across no man's land. At one point, the British began singing, O come, all ye faithful, and the Germans responded by singing the Latin version of it. There were small exchanges of gifts of food, tobacco, alcohol, souvenirs. The artillery in the region fell silent. The truce also allowed a breathing spell where recently killed soldiers could be brought back to be buried. Joint religious services were held. The truce held until New Year's Day. That's from Captain Bruce Brain's father. Eventually, at the risk of court-martial, which meant during World War I being shot, both the German high command and the British high command um, demanded that their soldiers begin killing each other once again. Interesting to speculate what would happen if peace would have just stayed. It would be a very different world. Now, peace may be something that ultimately flows from inside outwards, but I think hope is lived outwardly. Hope requires concrete, sometimes outlandish, frequently countercultural acts that show that we believe in a different reality than what's going on around us. And I think if you play the two texts off each other, our New Testament reading and the reading from Isaiah, it, it, gives, a, it gives kind of a picture of what is required to give hope some sort of concrete reality in this world. The Romans passage begins by saying, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. Now, I want you to think of someone in your life, past or present, who has loved you when you were unlovable. Okay, I know some of you are never unlovable, uh, but try to think of someone who loved you when you probably didn't deserve it. I think one of the most amazing, horrible things that has happened in recent history was what happened in Lancaster County when a deranged man came in and shot ten little Amish girls. And unfortunately, we've become desensitized to people shooting babies. That's a whole other sermon, or maybe never a sermon, just something we weep about. But the aftermath of this shooting is what the world had trouble wrapping its mind around. Uh, I recently read an article, the mother of the shooter, the day, <laughs> the day of the shooting, one of the fathers of the little girls who died showed up at 
her house. And a mother of the victim showed up and they wept together. At her son's funeral, a group of Amish people came and made a circle around the family so the TV cameras couldn't see them to protect them. Later on, she developed cancer and the Amish community came and built an extra room on her house so she could recover. Now, a scholar, um, Professor Elizabethtown, said this about the Amish. The Amish forgive first and then every day work through the emotions of it. While their hearts were breaking, they did concrete acts of forgiveness and then prayed that their hearts would follow. To me, it's not amazing that people don't act like Christians, that Christians act badly. Okay. It's part of our creed, right? All right? But I am grateful when we actually see moments where what we believe, the crucified hope that we have, is made concrete in the worst possible days by people who have gone through the worst things any of us could ever go through. Hope is the fruit of loving in unlovable times. G.K. Chesterton said this, To love means loving the unlovable. To forgive means forgiving the unpardonable. Faith means believing the unbelievable. Hope means hoping when everything seems hopeless. So, loving others is hard, but then we come to our Hebrew reading, and then that is even maybe perhaps more absurd. The notion of beating swords into plowshares. By the way, this passage was probably written while the Assyrian army was bearing down upon uh, the people of Israel. It already had destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, was ransacking every country around them, and was heading towards Jerusalem. So, it's an absurd notion on itself that we should beat swords into plowshares, right? The fact that it's written in a time of imminent danger is even more outlandish. Okay, I'm going to read a political speech to you here, just because I feel like being controversial. So, here we go. Cannot swords be turned into plowshares? Can we and all nations not live in peace? In our obsession with antagonisms of the moment... We often forget how much unites all the members of humanity. Perhaps we need some outside universal threat to make us recognize this common bond. I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from the outside this world. And yet I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? What could be more alien than war and the threat of war? Okay, you want to know what Snowflake said that? President Ronald Reagan addressing the United Nations. Now, however, I disagree with him. Okay. The idea that what could be more alien than war than the threat of war? Okay. Maybe Peggy Noonan wrote this. <laughs> All right. But Peggy knows better as well. Because something that humans are really good at is war. But yet, on our better days, when our better angels are speaking, we know that it's wrong to kill our brother. If we do away with the propaganda and the alienation and all the fear and anxiety 
regardless of whether a person looks different than you and I, whether or not they speak a different language or worship a different way, we know their DNA is the same as ours. Daniel Barrett. One is called to live nonviolently, even to change one. I'm sorry, let me start over. One is called to live nonviolently, even if the change one works for seems impossible. It may or may not be possible to turn the U.S. around through nonviolent revolution. But one thing favors such an attempt the total inability of violence to change anything for the better. <laughs> right? To hope is to live in God's coming reign of peace, which for us Christians can be a present reality. As a Christian, we know that we all are God's children. As Christians, we know that Christ died a violent death because of the violence of humanity. We know that if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. We know that everybody's babies and children should be able to thrive and live. We know that. We believe that. We don't believe that God loves us better than anyone else. Well, if you do, you might, but you're wrong, okay? As Christians, we know this. Now, one thing that both the Romans passage and the Isaiah passage have in common is they both have this future orientation. They're both looking towards a better day. For faith, or I'm sorry, for Isaiah, it's this notion that many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Here is that idea of Israel being a light to the nations. That the reason Israel existed was so the world could see that there was a God who needed to be worshipped. A God that loved humanity, a God that did not exist for you to do things for that God, but a God who loved God's creation and wanted all people to live in justice and peace with each other. That was the vision, okay? Never happened, all right? But that was, that was the hope. That was the project. And certainly that idea is what gets picked up by the Jews who believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so for Paul in Romans... Because Christ has already come, there's this belief that the new age is on its way. Now, Paul's not naive. Paul ends up dying a capital criminal at the hands of the Romans. Okay, so he, he wasn't um, Pollyannish. But he believed because God had come in the person of Christ that things had changed. That the world had changed. And that people who followed Christ were the first wave of that change. I don't know if you're paying attention when I was talking to the kids. Okay, right. What does the S mean? You know, the history of humanity is looking to a strong man, usually a strong man, occasionally a woman, but almost always a strong man, and saying that some strong man, because he promises me that my life will be better, he promises to make my nation great, he appeals to my fears and my anxieties. The history of particularly modern world, okay, revolves around people looking for human saviors. And most of the time, that justifies any kind of violence that happens, right? And there's different forms of it, okay? 
There's forms of it on the left. There's forms of it on the right. Okay? There's not one political philosophy that has a monopoly on behaving badly. And it may not even be something political, right? There's always a new diet. There's always a new self-help. Another, always a new guru. Somebody who's going to give me the answer. But Christ was not a superman. Christ demonstrated power in humility. Christ demonstrated strength in forgiveness. Christ demonstrated love in sacrifice. Christ was an agent of hope. Our Savior was broken by strong men, by those who believe that might is right. As Christians, we don't believe that. And regardless of what's going on around us, we're called not to act that way. We're called to live into our forgiveness. We're called to love the unlovable. Forgive the unforgivable. To hope in the midst of hopeless situations. I want to repeat something that Graham Williams of the 5th London Rifle Brigade described as he saw this truce breaking out in December of 1914. First the Germans would sing one of their carols and then we would sing one of ours until when we started up, Oh Come All You Faithful, the Germans immediately joined in singing the same hymn in Latin. And I thought, well, this is really an extraordinary thing. Two nations both singing the same carol in the middle of a war. It should not have been extraordinary for Christians to sing about Christ together. Imagine that Christians stop shooting each other, whether it's literally or figuratively. Imagine Christians loving their enemies literally. The Christian hope is not that we might live like Christ has come, but it is sometimes by the grace of God we actually do. And those moments give us hope. We're a little church here in, in, in Willow Grove, but we possess revolutionary, life-changing, world-changing truth here. The kind of thing that sets people free. The kind of thing that sometimes stops bullets and hate. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let us stand together and proclaim what we believe in the words.